This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. So did anyone else feel an overwhelming sense of dread when the clock struck midnight on New Year's? Because I know I certainly did, because 2024 is going to be a year that will almost certainly change the trajectory of our country's future in a significant way, for better or worse. And the direction we go this year will be decided by the presidential election, ultimately. And it looks like we are set to see a rematch between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And with each passing day, that prospect gets more and more demoralizing. And I'm going to explain why, if it's not already obvious. First and foremost, Trump is a literal threat to U.S. democracy. There are people who try to downplay the threat that he poses, but he does pose a threat. And when historians say that what he is doing and saying is similar to what we've seen previous dictators around the globe do, I listen to them. When political scientists warn about the threat that he poses, I listen to them. He has vocalized his intent to abuse power. Project 2025 is already underway, and if that wasn't already a turnoff that it should be to voters in theory, you would assume that his two impeachments, 91 criminal charges, or the fact that he was found liable for both fraud and rape would make his candidacy a non-starter for Americans, but that's not the case because that's the world that we live in. He is poised to be the GOP nominee, and he is currently beating Biden on average when it comes to general election polls, and the House Oversight Committee recently learned that he pocketed $7.8 million while in office from 20 different foreign governments, which obviously is a violation of the emoluments clause to the U.S. Constitution. But just stop for a moment and ask yourself, is this new revelation going to matter in any way, even a tiny bit? Of course not. And this Twitter user, I think, put it best, quote, good thing Trump isn't related to Joe Biden or he'd be in a lot of trouble. Exactly. And it probably doesn't even matter to you because we already knew that he was personally profiting off of the presidency. Nothing happened. So what is this new news going to do? It's not going to do anything. It's not going to amount to anything. Saudi Arabian lobbyists would literally stay at his hotels to butter him up during his presidency. And it worked because he did what they wanted. He literally defied Congress to sell them billions of dollars in weapons amid their genocide in Yemen, and he went on to veto a bipartisan resolution that would have ended U.S. complicity in Saudi's genocide in Yemen. So this new revelation, or really any revelation for that matter about him, will have an infinitesimal impact on the upcoming election. In fact, there isn't much he can do to get his loyalists to turn on him. Take it from Sarah Longwell, who spoke to Trump supporters in Iowa. Here's what she told CNN. I was doing a focus group with Iowa voters just this week, and I asked them if there was anything that would turn them off from Donald Trump. And one said, well, if he did something really extreme, like either died or murdered somebody. And that was the only thing that would make them not vote for him and one of these other candidates. Everyone in the group was more or less for Donald Trump. And they all certainly believed that Donald Trump would be the nominee coming out of Iowa. So he either has to die or murder someone to not get their support. But let's be real. Even if there was evidence that he actually committed murder, they still wouldn't turn on him. They just would refuse to believe it. They'd call it fake news. So I don't even believe that murder would get them to turn on Donald Trump. That's how little faith that I have in them. Remember, these are the same people who screech about Bill Clinton's association with Jeffrey Epstein, rightfully so, by the way, but conveniently pretend as if Donald Trump never knew Epstein, despite him admitting that he knew him for 15 years and that he was a terrific guy who likes girls on the younger side. But putting aside Trump's corruption and criminality and general stupidity, It's not just going to be a tumultuous four years of him if he gets elected again. It's not just more Supreme Court justices. He is going to dismantle the administrative state and permanently change the structure of our government and institutions. That is a problem. He's open about his plans to attack democracy and dismantle institutions. And currently, he's the favorite to win. Keep that in mind. So ask yourself, how is it even possible that someone so terrible, a fucking cartoon character, could be leading in polls right now? It's got to say at least something about his opponent, does it not? 
And I'd argue it does. Much like his predecessor, Joe Biden is complicit in genocide. More than 20,000 Gazans have been murdered by Israel. Netanyahu cabinet members have expressed genocidal intent and admitted that ethnic cleansing is their end goal. And Biden still will not tell them to stop. In fact, he bypassed Congress to sell them even more weapons that they will inevitably use on innocent civilians in Gaza. But don't worry, guys. He told them to end the mass civilian deaths while he was giving them more weapons that they'll use to blow up civilians. So it's all good, apparently. And to say that his support for Israel has been catastrophic would be an understatement. At the time that I record this video in January of 2024, he has now lost the support of Arab Americans in key swing states like Michigan. He's lost the support of black voters, Latino voters. He's lost the support of young voters who are sympathetic to the plight of the Palestinian people. But he is still not telling Israel to stop. Now, liberals might respond and point out that this rhetoric that he's been using lately has at least started to shift in regard to Israel's genocide. And yes, that's true. But we don't need him to talk the talk. We need him to walk the fucking walk. Your stated concerns about civilian casualties rings hollow if you're selling them more fucking weapons. It makes you an accomplice. And he is. So the question is, what does he do? He cuts off the money, cuts off the supply of weapons, tells them to stop, and maybe has a chance to actually win if people forget that he did all of this shit by then, which many will not. Many will remember it, but at least he'd have a better chance if he stopped this. And people pretend as if Biden is powerless, but that is bullshit. Case in point, former presidents like Ronald Reagan have told Israel to stop, and guess what happened? They did. The nation's Trita Parsi writes, in 1982, President Ronald Reagan was disgusted by Israeli bombardment of Lebanon. He stopped the transfer of cluster munitions to Israel and told Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin in a phone call that this is a holocaust. Reagan demanded that Israel withdraw its troops from Lebanon. Begin caved. 20 minutes after their phone call, Begin ordered a halt on attacks. Indeed, it is absurd to claim that Biden has no leverage, particularly given the massive amounts of arms he has shipped to Israel. In fact, Israeli officials openly admit it. Quote, all of our missiles, the ammunition, the precision-guided bombs, all the airplanes and bombs, it's all from the U.S., retired Israeli general Yitzhak Brick conceded in November of last year. Quote, the minute they turn off the tap, you can't keep fighting. You have no capability. Everyone understands that we can't fight this war without the United States, period. So let's be clear. Biden has a choice. And I hate to reduce serious issues down to memes because it kind of undermines the seriousness of it. But this meme shared by Roots Action perfectly and concisely encapsulates the predicament that Biden is in. Either have any shot whatsoever at re-election or commit genocide. And as we all know, he's pressing the genocide button. And they're responding to David Hogg, who makes a crucial point. If Biden can't adequately and immediately address the mass drop he has had in the polls with young people, there is no path to victory. Simply wanting it to be different or acting like there is no problem doesn't change the fact that we have a major problem. He continues, there's a lot of young people in Georgia, Michigan, Wisconsin, and other critical states that Biden absolutely has to get the votes of in order to win. The danger is not that they are going to vote for Trump. The danger is them just not voting. But as you can see the immediate response is from smug liberal Rachel Bitkoffer, who says after the kids don't vote, they can ride their high horse right into the Trump camps. But it doesn't work that way. The onus is on Biden, not the voters. He knows his support for genocide is morally outrageous to voters. He knows that he has the power to stop it, but isn't doing that. So if he has a year to fix the issue and does not, you don't blame disillusioned young people with no power who chose to stay home. You blame the person with power who took their votes for granted. But if voter shaming was an effective strategy, don't you think it would have worked in 2016? But no, Hillary Clinton lost. You can't blame voters for that. You have to blame Hillary Clinton for running a terrible campaign. And the same is true now with Joe Biden. But there are more warning signs that he's choosing to ignore, not just voters tuning out. For example, multiple administration officials by now have spoken out anonymously, and some have even resigned over this administration's complicity with Israel's genocide. The latest is former education official Tariq Habash, who is a Palestinian American who resigned saying, quote, I cannot represent an administration that does not value all human life 
equally. I cannot stay silent as this administration turns a blind eye to the atrocities committed against innocent Palestinian lives in what leading human rights experts have called a genocidal campaign by the Israeli government. And he further explained his reasoning in an interview with Joy Reid on MSNBC. And here's what he had to say. It hurts. It is a dehumanizing thing to hear from the president of the United States, someone who you worked so hard to campaign for and elect and um, support his policies that, you know, your life is not valuable. Your identity means less than other people's identities. And it's okay that tens of thousands of people who look like you and who have similar backgrounds and heritage are dying and being massacred. And that hurts. Do you get the sense that, that there are a lot of other people in the Biden campaign and in the administration who feel the way you do, that are uh, maybe not saying anything? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think a lot of people are saying something. I think that we've seen hundreds of State Department officials sign on to numerous dissent cables yeah. that were leaked. We've seen USAID officials. We've seen White House staff. We've seen interns. We've seen hundreds of uh, officials across the administration from dozens of agencies. This is a pretty commonly held position by a lot of the biggest supporters of the yeah. president. And the majority of American voters support a ceasefire, but the president's unwillingness to move on this policy is deafening and it hurts. You know, uh, you were the only Palestinian American in uh, the Department of Education, but you also were a campaign guy. You, you worked on the campaign. Um, this is not the most important thing, electoral politics, but it kind of is because our democracy is at stake. What are you going to do in, in November? Would you, I mean, do you have a, uh, would you vote for Joe Biden? I think that's up to him. Um, you know, I did volunteer to support the campaign. I've supported the president for the last three years and every single thing I do in my professional life. And the reality is, the president's in power. He is the one whose name is on the ballot and it's his policies. If he wants to earn my vote and the vote of millions of Americans who support peace and an end to violence, that's up to him. It's up to him. Exactly. Now, he was asked by CNN's Abby Phillips whether or not he thinks Biden's support for genocide will cost him the election. And this is what he said. Do you think that this issue could cost Biden the 2024 election? And if it does... Would you be comfortable with that? Listen, I don't think that that's my decision to make. I think it's the president's. He's the one on the ballot. He's the one who has the power with a phone call to, uh, to end this violence, to make demands of the Israeli government to end the indiscriminate violence against Palestinians. And so I think if the president wants to ensure a second term, if he wants to ensure the support of millions of Americans um, who are part of his base, who have supported him, you know, I think he needs to hear what the people are saying. And I hope he does. Yeah. And with 11 months left until the election, nobody really knows what's going to happen at this point. All we can do is look at the polls, gauge where voters are at now in January of 2024 and make a guess, right? A lot can change between now and November, but with so much at stake, I find it infuriating that he is so irresponsible to dismiss voters' concerns when this is something that they have made very clear matters to them. This is the same guy who told us democracy matters and he wants to protect democracy from Trump, but apparently genocide is a higher priority to him than saving the republic. And what's even more maddening is that Israel's far-right government would prefer Trump instead of Biden because as supportive as Biden has been, they know Trump would be even more supportive. So they don't care if what they do hurts Biden, but he should care. But, you know, he doesn't seem to. Now, Trump would also be terrible on this issue because he's made it very clear that he thinks that Biden is too weak on this issue. He's weak on the genocide that he's complicit in. So when it comes to this election, you really don't have a choice when it comes to genocide in Gaza. Both candidates who are the major candidates support that. The ones that can win, they will support genocide in Gaza so long as Israel wants to do it. And that's a damn shame. But to be clear... I don't think that the people disillusioned with Biden are going to vote for Donald Trump. I think they're aware that Trump is worse on this issue. As Charlemagne the God put it, it's a competition between Biden and the couch. If he can't get people off the couch to vote for him, then he's going to lose. 
because the people who supported Trump in 2020 and 2016, they're going to keep supporting Trump. But Biden needs to get the people back out to vote for him that he mobilized in 2020. And as it stands right now, he is failing to do that. But I don't want to create this false equivalence between Trump and Biden, because even though they're the same when it comes to the issue of supporting genocide in Gaza, there are actual meaningful differences between the both of them in other areas. For example, another Trump term would almost certainly endanger the lives of trans people. And as somebody with trans family members, I just don't think that that's a risk that I want to take. It's not what I want to take. I don't want to gamble with their lives. And Project 2025, which he supports, would entail a nationwide ban on gender-affirming care that the president does via executive order or regulatory changes. They don't need to go through Congress to do this. That's a real threat. Furthermore, as fascistic and ruthless as Biden's border policies are, while Republicans ironically pretend like there's an open border currently, Trump is already broadcasting his intent to be even more ruthless than his 2016 term, if you can imagine that. So there are concrete differences between Biden and Trump, and these differences make Biden the objectively better candidate than Trump. So my goal isn't to perpetuate this false equivalence and tell you that Republicans and Democrats are the same or Biden and Trump is the same. But... Here's the thing. You still have to take into consideration what voters want because most people care about this issue so much that they are one-issue voters. Israel, Gaza, that's their top concern. It's the most salient thing to a lot of them, a lot of young people, a lot of Arab Americans. So you can't ignore them when they're telling you they don't want their tax dollars funding a barbaric genocide in Gaza and then fault them for choosing to stay home. The onus is on Biden. He is the one who needs to take their concerns seriously, make their concerns his biggest priority because they're the ones that elected them. And he is a public servant who is supposed to represent them. And he's not doing that currently. What he's doing is not the will of the people. It's undemocratic and it's monstrous. And his refusal to listen to the people who got him elected puts him in a vulnerable position when it comes to this next election. But don't take my word for it. Look at the polls. Aggregate polling data shows that Trump and him are neck and neck. Trump has a 2.2 overall lead on Biden. So I hope Biden pulls his head out of his ass before it's too late. But even if he does, it's just still sad to see a repeat of him versus Donald Trump in 2024, which is the most likely scenario because we really do deserve better candidates than both of them. Today, I am announcing my candidacy for the 2024 Republican nomination to represent Colorado's fourth congressional district in the United States House of Representatives. It's the right move for me personally, and it's the right decision for those who support our conservative movement. This is the right move for Colorado, for us. Since the first day I ran for public office, I promised I would do whatever it takes to stop the socialists and communists from taking over our country. That means staying in the fight, but it also means not allowing Hollywood elites and progressive money groups to buy the third district, a seat that they have no business owning. I will not allow dark money that is directed at destroying me personally to steal this seat. It's not fair to the third district and the conservatives there who have fought so hard for our victories, of which I'm incredibly grateful. You heard that right, friends. Congresswoman Bobo announced on December 27 that she is now running in Colorado's fourth congressional district as opposed to the third after she nearly lost that seat in the 2022 election. In fact, she only beat her Democratic opponent, Adam Frisch, by 546 votes. And early polling indicates that she would again have a very difficult time keeping that seat in 2024. So if you couldn't care less about your constituents and winning was your only concern, what do you do? Well, you bail, and that's exactly what she did. Now, this new district that she's running in actually belonged to Republican Ken Buck, but after he announced that he is retiring, she saw it as an opportunity to run for that seat because it's safer in her opinion. And she's not necessarily wrong, but it still does carry some risks, primarily because she has to participate now in a GOP primary that's 
open. There's no incumbent in that district. Now, as John Dorman of Business Insider explains, she could also lose the 4th District GOP primary and find herself out of a job as she's now running in an Eastern Plains anchor district where she has few local ties. Colorado State Representative Richard Holtorf, one of the candidates in the primary, immediately accused Boebert of seat shopping after her announcement. And he's not wrong to be mad because even if she doesn't have ties to that district, she still does have a lot of name recognition. And as we've all learned in American politics, name recognition goes a long way. But on the flip side, Dorman also argues that this could actually help Republicans keep that seat in the third district with a more moderate Republican as the nominee. Although Adam Frisch, the Democrat in that race, has managed to raise $7.7 million, which will make it really difficult for any Republican to defeat him. But I mean, it's also a pretty conservative district. Now, she pointed that out in the announcement video, the fact that he raised so much money, and she denounced the dark money being spent against her in District 3. And it's true, this is happening. But it goes both ways, because in 2022, she had nearly $700,000 in dark money being spent against her, but also had 620000 in dark money being spent for her, but she still managed to outraise her Democratic opponent overall by millions of dollars. But the difference this time is that he's actually raised a comparable amount to her. And if he almost beat her after being outraised by millions of dollars, imagine what could happen if he actually outraised her. And therein lies the reason why she's bailing. But she's right to point out the issues inherent with dark money spending. I think that it should be banned entirely. There should be no dark money. In fact, I think that all campaigns should be publicly financed so people are choosing candidates and not corporations but the question is has Bobert used her position of power to actually push for campaign finance reform has she proposed any changes at all to this corrupt system that she's now denouncing i mean it seems perfectly like she is okay with the system so long as it benefits her but once it's no longer useful to her and actually threatens her then all of a sudden she's against it and speaking out against dark money but she's not just a hypocrite. In fact, she's been accused of illegally spending 2022 campaign funds and reportedly even spent campaign cash at the bar owned by her ex-boyfriend, who's the one that she gave a public hand job to during a Beetlejuice play. So, I mean, if you're not proposing changes to the system and you benefit directly from dark money, I feel like you don't get to complain about dark money. We should be the ones complaining about dark money, not candidates who take dark money, who benefit from dark money who get elected based on the significance of dark money spending in that race. Now, her former Democratic opponent, Adam Frisch, responded to this news on Twitter and expectedly, yeah, criticized her. He writes, this just proves Lauren Boebert was never committed to the communities of Colorado 3. She is only in politics for herself. And he's right. But to be fair, this isn't necessarily a unique phenomenon. This isn't a Lauren Boebert problem. This is an American politics problem. I mean, how many politicians have we seen just recently essentially lie to their constituents about who they are just to get elected? And then once they're elected, they change flip like that kirsten cinema mr i'm not a progressive john fetterman george fucking santos mondaire jones who was once a progressive democrat is now running as a new deal centrist democrat i mean they're all opportunists and none of them actually care about the people who they're supposed to be representing and lauren bobert is no different and if adam frisch were to get elected i mean i can't necessarily say that he would change because he's already a pretty moderate democrat if not a conservative democrat outright but this isn't a lauren bobert issue specifically the reason why she's bad in particular is not because she lied to her constituents the problem is because she is a fascist who poses a danger to democracy but she further explained her reasoning as to why she switched districts as if it wasn't already obvious and she decided to name drop several celebrities and she cited them as being indirectly responsible for this decision let's watch they've raised 10 million dollars out of aspen and i take the other um places in your district it's all flowing through there because of you you believe by switching to the fourth you're cutting off the, that money will cease and you'll give a uh, you'll give a, a, a mega candidate a shot to win in in colorado third 
Steve, that's exactly correct. Uh, they do not have policies that they are running on. They're simply running against Lauren Boebert. And uh, it's not just Aspen that the money is coming from. It's coming from Hollywood. When you have Barbara Streisand coming in and donating to the Democrat, when you have Ryan Reynolds coming in and donating to the Democrat, uh, it shows you that Hollywood is trying to buy their way into Congress. You have George Soros and his dark money groups that have already spent $2 million in a non election year in Colorado's third district. And so this cuts that uh, that funding that they're receiving now and gives an opportunity uh, for conservatives to have a stronger presence in Colorado. So I'm not abandoning my district. I love Colorado's third district and will continue to fight for each and every person who's in the district. Except you are literally abandoning your district specifically to save your own ass. So what are you talking about? Do you have no fucking shit? Shame. I mean, it's Lauren Boebert. Of course, she has no shame. But like to say such a demonstrable lie is just baffling to me. I get that it's Lauren Bobo and she's not the brightest bulb in the bunch. But holy shit, have some fucking self-awareness to not just be so brazen when you're lying to people. Now, it's also really bizarre to me that she is randomly name dropping celebrities like Barbara Streisand and Ryan Reynolds as if Hollywood elites trying to buy this election is significant. Because when you actually explore this a little bit and you look at the numbers, that doesn't really seem to be the case, at least based on what she's saying. So the Hill's Lauren Sorza reports, according to Federal Election Commission, filings, Streisand donated $1,000 to Frisch's campaign in April, while Reynolds donated $500 in March. In other words, $1,500 combined between two celebrities is tantamount to Hollywood trying to buy that seat. What? I mean, what an incredible thing to say. If you remained in that district, Lauren, and you lost, I promise you it wouldn't have been because two celebrities made comparatively small donations. I mean, Jesus Christ. But notice how she first blamed dark money and now she's blaming Ryan Reynolds and Barbara Streisand. That's not dark money because you're seeing their names in the FEC reports. So that is not dark money. It's the opposite of dark money. But any money being spent against her is a problem because she feels entitled to a seat in Congress. Any seat, just pick one. She just wants to be there because she loves the power. And she shared those names because I think it perpetuates this narrative that conservatives are actually more representative of regular people because they're against elites. See, elites hate them. At least Hollywood elites do. But no, it's just you, Bobo. You are an extremist, and most normal people are repulsed by you, and they don't want you in Congress. Even apolitical people can see that you're just a bad person, and you don't care about anyone. You're not focused on policy. You're focused on self-aggrandizement. So you're a bad person. So it's not that the elites are against you. Everyone is against you. The elites love you, actually, because that's why there's so much dark money being spent on your behalf. But whether or not she's going to be able to stay in Congress, it really is an open question at this point because I just don't know. But how hilarious would it be if she actually ended up losing after bailing on her constituents for what she believed to be a safer race? I am trying to speak that into the universe because I'm trying to manifest it for something that I think we would all like to see in 2024. But my God, would I enjoy seeing that? Or if she ended up switching back to District 3 because she saw polling results showing her losing the GOP primary. Either way, I think that there's potential for a lot of hilarity to ensue, but either way, we'll just have to wait to see how it all plays out. So we got some pretty shocking news over the holiday break, or I should say we got an announcement of kind of an announcement that's coming any day now. The names of the elites linked to notorious sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein are set to be made public any day now, as Al Jazeera reports, and you can expect 150 connections to be revealed, or at least most of them. Now, by the time that you see this video, the full list may have already been released, but spoiler alert, we actually already know some of the names to expect to see thanks to the release of Epstein's flight logs during Ghislaine Maxwell's trial. This includes individuals like Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, Prince Andrew, Bill Gates, Alan Dershowitz, many others, and also RFK Jr. already admitted on Fox news that he was on two of two of Epstein's flights, but it was totally innocent, guys, he swears. Now, to be clear, just them being on the list doesn't automatically mean that they've committed sex crimes per se, but doesn't warrant suspicion from all of us and necessitate a thorough and comprehensive investigation of everyone linked to him. 
You bet your ass it does. And you should be consistent and support all of Epstein's connections being investigated, regardless of their partisan affiliation. And I say this because not everyone has that same standard. But when it comes to what I think, if they're found guilty, regardless of which party they're from or who they are, they should be locked up and the key should be thrown away. Because what Jeffrey Epstein did was heinous. He destroyed countless lives. And anyone who was part of that, who was found to be guilty and a co-conspirator, they should be penalized, obviously. I feel like I shouldn't have to say that. But unfortunately, I do. I don't care if it's Donald Trump or Bill Clinton. They could share a cell as far as I'm concerned if they're both seen to have been guilty. But true justice for Epstein's victims means holding all of the elites accountable in the event there's evidence of wrongdoing. But some Republicans are pretending like Trump isn't also implicated, which is not surprising to me, but it's still really infuriating. For example, Marjorie Green tweeted, for some of us, it's no surprise at all that Bill Clinton will be named in the Jeffrey Epstein files. We said it a long time ago, but they labeled us conspiracy theorists. First of all, who's they? And no, they didn't, because we all know about this. There will be lots of names you've never heard of, and the IC collected info on them. Pedophiles belong in jail, not on secret government lists. Now, she later followed up with this meme of Bill Clinton, which accuses him of having sex with underage victims on Epstein's island. And look, that's interesting, right? But aren't you going to address the elephant in the room? Don't you have anything to say about Trump's proven connection with Epstein? And doesn't that look a little bit suspicious to you? Well, after a bunch of people replied and asked the same question that we were all wondering, pointing out the obvious Trump connection between Epstein and him, here's what she had to say about that. The accusations against President Trump are fake. Trump kicked Epstein out of Mar-a-Lago. If he had anything to hide, he wouldn't have done that. Of course she thinks this. Of course. Isn't that convenient, by the way? See, Bill Clinton's Epstein connection is legitimate because I don't like him. But when it comes to Donald Trump, well, that connection has to be fake because I like him. So he can't possibly be implicated in any way, despite the ample evidence that he has been connected to Epstein for a very long time. I mean, listen, shutting the fuck up is also an option if you can't fight past the cognitive dissonance and refuse to not be a hypocrite but she can't help herself but i mean she's not alone she's kind of a microcosm of a bigger issue because there are many trump supporters that simply pretend as if trump had no connection whatsoever to epstein or just don't acknowledge it but if you're going to purport to care about this you can't pretend as if trump isn't also somebody who you should be looking at. And I say this because the connection between Trump and Epstein has been long established. And on top of that, there are things that Trump said about Epstein that are very sus. For example, in 2002, he said this, quote, I've known Jeff for 15 years. Terrific guy, Trump told New York Magazine that year for a story headlined. Jeffrey Epstein, international money man of mystery. He's a lot of fun to be with. It is even said that he likes beautiful women as much as I do, and many of them are on the young side, no doubt about it, Jeffrey enjoys his social life. Hmm, that's a little bit of a weird thing to say, is it not? He enjoys beautiful women as much as I do, but, you know, he prefers them on the younger side. That's weird, especially given what we all know now and what we've known for a long time, to be clear. But it's almost like Trump knew something, but he still thought that Epstein was a terrific guy who just enjoys the social life. Yeah, I don't believe that he's just completely ignorant or was ignorant to any of this. But speaking of Epstein's social life, the reason why Trump says this is because Trump was right there with him enjoying the social life. NBC News released footage from 1992 of Trump partying it up with Epstein at Mar-a-Lago, and you can see them chumming it up together, and Trump's even pointing to women that they're looking at who are dancing. Hmm, that's interesting, isn't it? Now, to be clear, this is not evidence of Trump committing a crime, but after 26 women have accused him of sexual misconduct and a jury of his peers found him liable for rape, do we at least have a reason to be a little bit skeptical of this connection that he has with Epstein? You bet your ass we do. Oh, and let's not forget about this. Um, Ghislaine Maxwell is in prison, and so a lot of people want to know if she's going to turn in powerful people. And I know you've talked in the past about Prince Andrew, and uh, you've criticize Bill Clinton's behavior. I'm wondering, uh, do you feel that she's going to turn in powerful men? How do you see that working out? 
I don't know. I haven't really been following her too much. I just wish her well, frankly. Uh, I've met her numerous times over the years, especially since I lived in Palm Beach, and I guess they lived in Palm Beach. Uh, but I wish her well. Hmm, that's also a little bit weird, is it not? Now, I also appreciate him just volunteering information about how he's met with her numerous times. Really convincing. Thanks, Donald Trump. I'm sure you had nothing to do with this. Now, to make matters worse, he was asked about Jeffrey Epstein and whether or not he thinks that Epstein actually killed himself in an interview with Tucker Carlson last year. And you're going to see him become incredibly uncomfortable and try to change the subject immediately. Take a look. Do you think Epstein killed himself sincerely? I don't know. I will say that, you know, he was a fixture in Palm Beach. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what Barr said about it either. I have no idea what he said. What did he say? He killed himself, probably? He said he killed himself and that they were going to do this investigation. They never did the investigation. It's never been public. And they hid it. And like, why are they doing that? And clearly Barr knew. But why would Bill Barr be covering up the death of Jeffrey Epstein? Uh, Bill Barr didn't do an investigation on the election fraud either. Okay, He said he did and he pretended he did, but he didn't. but he didn't do the job there. Uh, I don't know what he did with Epstein, but possibly he did Do you think do it's that. possible that Epstein was killed? Oh, sure, it's possible. I, I mean, I don't really believe, I think he probably uh, committed suicide. He had a life with, you know, beautiful homes and beautiful everything. And he, uh, all of a sudden he's incarcerated and not doing very well. I would say that he did, but there are those people, there are many people, I think you're one of them, right? But a lot of people think that he, uh, he was killed. He knew a lot on a lot of people. He was killed. You I think, think so? I think the, more, the closer you look, I'm not a conspiracy person at all. I believe everything I hear. Uh, but yeah, the, the closer you look into it, I mean, the Attorney General of the United States, your Attorney General, yeah. clearly lied about the Epstein death. Yeah, and he was. Why? He was uh, certainly, it wasn't well done. They had no cameras, they had no anything, everybody was sleeping, and you know, there, the a case could be made. Look. <laughs> I'm not going to get involved in it, but I can tell you a case could be made either way. Hmm. Very telling. I'm no body language expert, but uh, his body language says a lot there. Now, it's also uh, very weird to me that Tucker Carlson didn't ask him directly about his connection to Epstein. And I mean, you can argue that he really didn't have to because that's the elephant in the room. And it's odd for Trump to not expect to have to address that when it comes up. But I mean, if you if you're Tucker Carlson here and you genuinely care about this and you're not just virtue signaling, how do you not ask him directly when you have one of Epstein's associates right there in front of you? Why not just ask the question? I mean, we all know why, because Republicans are fucking hypocrites. And there are a lot of liberal hypocrites who refuse to acknowledge Bill Clinton's association, but the number is much higher on the right than it is for liberals. Now, I do want to stress that I'm not just bringing up Trump's connection with Epstein for the sake of whataboutism or to absolve anyone else on the flight logs of any potential wrongdoing, but I'm saying that you either think all of these connections are suspicious or none of them are. You can't pick and choose. It's all really, really suspicious to me. But I'm consistent on this, and I'll prove it. Noam Chomsky, one of the greatest thinkers of our time, who's influenced me personally, was revealed to have been a longtime associate of Jeffrey Epstein, and his reaction to the revelation was even more troubling, saying it's none of our business. But guess what? I'm not going to just sit here and pretend as if this didn't happen while simultaneously denouncing other elites on that list. Noam Chomsky needs to not only explain himself, but there needs to be an investigation into his association with Epstein. You don't get a pass because I like you or once respected you. Fuck that. Jeffrey Epstein was a monster who used his wealth and powerful connections to hide the sex crimes that he committed for decades, and he destroyed countless lives. This is a monster, and what he did was pretty much an open secret. So if that's your buddy, at a minimum, you've got some explaining to do. But really, there needs to be investigations into all of these people. But I mean, I can say that about Chomsky, and I can say the same exact thing about Bill Clinton. My standard is the same, and it doesn't change based on party affiliation or my feelings towards Epstein's associates, right? So the question is, Why can't Trump supporters like Marjorie Greene do the same thing and just be consistent here? You can still like Trump and agree with his politics, but say, yeah, I like him despite this thing, and I hope that he answers for this or explains it. But they can't do that. They can't. They refuse to actually say, yeah, Trump fucked up here. This is suspicious. I don't think he's guilty personally, but they they just pretend like it's fake. 
oh, the Epstein thing is fake with him. How can you just say that and still expect anyone to take you seriously? It's mind boggling to me. Now, furthermore, why aren't more powerful people concerned about this? That's a question that we should all be asking ourselves. And Republican Tim Burchett was asked about this, specifically why Congress in particular isn't more interested in releasing this list. And here's what he said, according to the Washington Times, quote, too many of my colleagues, I'm afraid, are compromised in this area for whatever reason, Mr. Burchett told Newsmax this week. Somebody whispered in their ears saying, hey, you don't want something to come out on something else. You better keep your mouth shut on this. That's exactly what they've done. Yeah. Now, it's not like he's telling us something that most of us didn't already assume, but I really do appreciate him confirming it and also saying the quiet part loud. But in conclusion, this is information that I think is important, and I think we all should care specifically because this information and the release of it is how you get justice for Epstein's victims. This isn't good because this is how you score some partisan political points. This is how you get justice. But in reality, I don't think that people like Marjorie Greene care about justice. They're just saying this because they're virtue signaling and they're trying to score some negative partisan points. I mean, this is the same person who was touring the country with Matt Gates when he was being investigated for sex trafficking as well. So she genuinely does not care despite her previous, you know, affiliation with QAnon. She purports to care about these types of issues but in actuality she doesn't and i do find it really gross that like she will weaponize these types of serious issues where there are victims involved just to like score points that's that's just so sick to me right but in reality i don't expect republicans to be consistent and i don't expect any of epstein's co-conspirators in either party to be held accountable because elites in this country are above the law and they also protect each other, as Burchett pointed out. But, I mean, that shouldn't be the case, so we should still strive to do better. And I think that part of that, getting to justice, is getting these names released so there's public pressure for anyone who is potentially involved in wrongdoing here to be brought to justice. We deserve to know who may be involved, and any elite who is complicit in Epstein's sex trafficking needs to answer for their crimes. Now, when I say that... Any elite needs to answer for their crimes. I just want to stress once again, I mean any elite. Don't care if you have a D in front of your name or an R. I don't care who you are. I don't care if I previously liked you. Lock them all up and throw away the key if they're found guilty as far as I'm concerned. But I don't think that this list being released is going to facilitate that. But I do think that is that it is important because information is key here. And if we're even going to have hope of true justice and really closure for Epstein's victims, this is an important step. So I applaud the release of this list and I am interested to uh, see who else was involved with Epstein as well. LGBTQ youth are overrepresented in the child welfare system and lesbian, gay and bisexual children are more than twice as likely to experience a foster care placement as their heterosexual peers. About 30% of foster youth are LGBTQ, according to the Children's Bureau, and roughly 5% are transgender. LGBTQ young people in the child welfare system are also much more likely to report poor treatment related to their sexual orientation or gender identity. You just heard from Brooke McDonald, who is a staff writer for The Hill, who penned a comprehensive report about a new rule proposed by the Biden administration last year that aims to protect LGBTQ plus youth in foster homes by requiring agencies to place them in safe and affirming households, all in an effort to protect them from, quote, hostility, mistreatment or abuse based on the child's LGBTQI plus status. Now, this is important for the fact that, quote, LGBTQI plus youth are overrepresented in foster care, but face worse outcomes, including poor mental health, higher rates of homelessness and discrimination just because of who they are in some foster care settings. Now, part of the reason why LGBTQ plus youth are overrepresented in the foster care system in the first place is obviously due to rejection from their families after they come out. The Trevor Project reports that 28% of LGBTQ plus youth are unhoused or housing insecure, and that number is even higher for trans youth and LGBTQ plus youth of color. Now, I don't think that that 
number is necessarily attributable exclusively to rejection, but it's obviously a really huge contributor to those statistics. And what oftentimes happens is a young queer person will come out, get rejected by their family, and then only end up in another bad situation in the foster system where they experience even more rejection from religious foster parents who then try to force them into conversion therapy if they're gay or bisexual or refuse to affirm their identities if they're trans or non-binary, which is abusive. Now, it's a rehashing of trauma and abuse. It leads to further victimization. And this new rule is a simple thing that the Biden administration did to put a stop to this and further protect LGBTQ plus youth. So now they are going to be placed in homes where they are accepted for who they are. And that's really important for the well-being of these children. Now, some states have already adopted guidelines when it comes to this. In her article for The Hill, Brooke McDonough explains, 28 states in Washington, D.C. have explicit laws or policies in place to protect LGBTQ youths in foster care from discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity, and another six have laws prohibiting discrimination based on sexual orientation only, according to the Movement Advancement Project, a nonprofit organization that tracks LGBTQ laws. Now, furthermore, she adds, in 13 states, state-licensed child welfare agencies may legally refuse to place and provide services to children and families, including LGBTQ people and same-sex couples, if doing so conflicts with their religious beliefs. In other words, there are states that explicitly permit discrimination against LGBTQ plus couples by excluding them from the adoption process altogether. And to make matters worse, many of the same states have no laws requiring agencies to actually place LGBTQ plus youth in affirming households, which means they have no protections for abuse for these kids, which puts some of them in this vicious cycle where they're in and out of foster homes in perpetuity because the agencies aren't even trying to find suitable foster parents for their unique set of needs, which is a problem. Now, one could argue that these kids are already vulnerable, and so long as they've got a roof over their head, well, everything is copacetic, right? And sure, I understand why people are persuaded by that argument, but there are other factors to consider when it comes to child welfare, right? To place LGBTQ plus youth in non-affirming households only perpetuates the cycle of abuse and further victimizes them. And a lot of these children already came from abusive homes. So to put them in another environment that is conducive to abuse kind of defeats the purpose of the entire foster system, doesn't it? Moreover, if there's a shortage of foster parents, and that's the reason why they're just placing queer kids in non-affirming homes, well, you could literally ameliorate this problem these states by banning discrimination against lgbtq plus foster parents but they don't want to do that either and it's because the republicans in these states don't actually care about child welfare in fact they're opposed to improving conditions for lgbtq plus youth and i say this because they've chosen to fight the biden administration over this new proposal mcdon continues a bill introduced last month by representative jim banks who is currently running for an open senate seat would prevent foster and adoptive families from being required to affirm a transgender child's gender identity the measure called the sensible adoption for every home act has four Republican co-sponsors. Banks, in a statement to Fox News, said the bill was drafted in response to the HHS proposal, which he said discriminates against prospective caretakers that are opposed to irreversible sex change procedures on kids. Other Republicans have argued that the proposed rule would discriminate against faith-based providers. A bill filed in the House and Senate in November by Representative Mike Kelly and Senator Tim Scott, a former GOP presidential candidate, would prevent government agencies from penalizing child welfare service providers that are unwilling to take action contrary to their sincerely held religious beliefs, including affirming a child's gender identity or sexual orientation. The duo introduced identical legislation in 2019 and 2021. Yeah, so you can already spot the issues here. Jim Banks's legislation implies that the Biden administration's new rule would basically force foster parents of trans kids to perform irreversible sex change procedures on them when that's already not allowed until they're adults. So he is lying about what this rule entails, but in actuality, his bill would let agencies knowingly place kids in abusive environments with foster parents who dead name and misgender the kids that they're supposed to be caring for. He is effectively taking a pro-abuse position under the pretense of protecting kids, and it's genuinely sickening and Orwellian in the way that he framed this bill. Now, as for the Senate bill, they are trotting out the same religious liberty argument where Christians get to claim that they're being discriminated against 
against if they're not allowed to abuse the LGBTQ plus kids that are in their custody. But if religious parents stated that they uh, didn't want to ever take their kids to the doctor and they're going to opt for faith healing and prayer instead, does the state also not have a right in that instance to take action, to intervene? I mean, of course they do, because religious liberty is not absolute, and religious people don't have the right to abuse the children under the guise of their religious freedom. But Migdon also points to opposition to this rule from Marco Rubio, who penned this op-ed titled, Biden's Child Welfare Rules Will Make Foster Kids Homeless for the Holidays. Now, he manages to make an even dumber argument than the ones that we've already heard. He writes, these regulations for which public comment recently ended require all child welfare providers to conform to left-wing sexual ideology. This isn't about compassion for kids struggling with their identity. This is about demanding woke orthodoxy, an upfront commitment to using a child's identified pronouns, chosen name, and allow the child to dress in a manner that the child believes reflects their self-identified gender identity and expression from everyone in contact with the system. So according to Marco Rubio, the Biden administration is forcing foster parents to go woke in order to adopt. Except that is an inherently idiotic argument for a number of reasons. States already have requirements that they impose on anyone who wants to become a foster parent. You have to meet financial requirements, for example, in order to adopt. In Oregon, you have to undergo a home study process where they vet you to determine if you're even eligible to adopt in the first place. And I'm sure other states have the same process. Now, the reason why this process is so rigorous is because they want to make sure you're a suitable foster parent before they make you the guardian of an actual human human being. It's kind of an important job, is it not? So the process has to be rigorous. They have to vet you because you are caring for another life and how you raise them, how you care for them is going to impact them for the rest of their lives. And the reason why the Biden administration is proposing this new woke requirement is because mistreating LGBTQ foster youth by misgendering or deadnaming them could literally endanger their lives. The Trevor Project's 2023 mental health survey finds, among other things, that 41% of LGBTQ plus youth seriously considered attempting suicide suicide, including half of trans and non-binary youth. And 14% of LGBTQ plus youth actually attempted suicide in the past year, including one in five trans and non-binary youth. However, young trans and non-binary youth who live with people that respect their pronouns report lower rates of suicide attempts. Furthermore, trans and non-binary youth who attend schools that affirm their gender also report lower rates of suicide attempts. So the obvious takeaway is that LGBTQ plus youth in affirming environments do much better, and the simple act of respecting them lowers their suicide rates drastically. So requiring foster parents to adhere to standards of care for LGBTQ plus youth that demonstrably and statistically improves mental health outcomes for them isn't a matter of being woke. It's appropriate and necessary care for children with unique needs. In the same way that the state has a duty to not place children with foster parents who will physically abuse them, they also have an obligation to not place children with foster parents whose mistreatment will increase the odds that they will attempt suicide. You can call that being woke or religious discrimination, but I call it being a decent human being and for purposes of this discussion, being a good fucking parent. But these twisted Republicans have proven that they don't actually care about LGBTQ plus youth. To them, this is all about partisan politics. Joe Biden did it, so we're going to oppose it. I mean, they've passed policies in states around the country that they know will have negative health outcomes for trans youth. And they just they don't care. They think that's going to help them electorally or they just genuinely believe the sick shit that they're espousing. But either way, they are sick, sadistic freaks who prey on the most vulnerable populations in our society and they need to be opposed. So this story just hasn't gotten much attention, but that's now changing things to Brooks reporting. So I would highly encourage you to read her full article and share it everywhere. I'm going to link to it down below so people actually know what Republicans are doing because what they're doing here is effectively taking a pro-child abuse stance. And if that's not despicable to you, then what is? Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, 
and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.